first several years of my like life walking with Jesus as an extreme legalist. A lot of people have trouble believing that about me, but I was like a an amazing like rule follower for for a while. <laughs> um, when I met, I was the kind of quintessential ex bad boy turned Jesus follower. Um, uh, and with all the my crazy rebellion stories that I used to like to tell, um, Esther had experienced none of them. She was she had always been a rule follower. And, you know, I would say things like, hey, you remember that one show? And she was like, no, we didn't have a TV. I was like, where did you grow up? 1950? Or, or 1850? Like, um, and uh, so I've always, like, sworn she, she wasn't, like, a contemporary of mine. Like, you grew up in another planet somewhere. Um, but even though I'm, I was still, like, a questioner, I still like to challenge people's thinking, like, when I was a, a brand-new follower, uh, um, every rule that people threw at me, once they kind of showed me that it was in the Bible, I tried to follow it. Like, that was, I was a crazy um, rule follower. In fact, um, I was on the phone with Esther one time, and she was coming out of the grocery store, and this is like when cell phones were, like, brand new and the size of a book. You remember those? And, uh, and I'm on the phone, and, and she's got my cell phone with her, and, and she goes, oh, no. And I was like, what? She was like, oh, I was, I had bought, like, this little comb, and when I went to throw it in the car, it landed in the baby's car seat, and, and I didn't pay for it. And uh, and I actually, it was rain, it was storming. She'd actually managed to keep the boys kind of dry. She'd gotten them loaded in the van, but there was a car back then. But um, and got the groceries in. She's soaking wet, and I literally like shamed her into going back in and paying for this forty-nine cent comb. She was like, "Babe, I won't even open it. I'll like leave it on the dashboard." And then when I come back next time, I'll take it in and pay for it. I promise. I was like, no way are you going to sell your integrity for 49 cents. Like, you have to take that. <laughs> and so she got the baby's back out in the rain and took it in. Like, I was like a crazy rule follower um, back then. But, um, but for the most part, ex- except maybe the comb incident, Esther was a rule follower, too. She loved to, uh, you know, she had always been, you know, and always been, you know, whatever you're supposed to do. Um, I do, and uh, except for uh, the, the the driving thing, we had this driving issue. We good, Brett? Okay. Um, while reading Romans 13 in in uh, in preparation for Bible college class we were taking, um, I read I read this. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in position of authorities are placed there by God. So everyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against God. And I was like, what? So not only do I have to, like, obey the big rules, don't steal, don't kill anybody, you know. Now I've got to obey, like, the government rules, too. Like, that's just too much. That's, like, wait, this is hard. Following Jesus is hard. Like, and I was, but I tried. Like, I dove in. Like, and, and to me, that meant the, the, the speed limits. Like, you can't, like, that's a law. And the Bible says, obey the laws of the land, so you can't speed. Like, and it made... Perfect sense. And my wife doesn't speed. She's she she follows the rules of the road completely. She got when she was learning to drive, she actually got T boned um, by someone who ran a red light. And so she right off the bat learned that you can get in a wreck even if you're doing everything perfect. So she's never really been able to like relax while driving. Drives very tense and 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 uh, but she's always been a rule follower. Um, and uh, but um, but it, I learned not long into our marriage that although she liked to follow rules, if we were running late, she didn't mind if I, you know, 
if I stepped on it just a little bit. Um, you know, we would usually we were late because I was um, making us late. But uh, because I had made us late, but I would be driving along at speed limit, a mile or 200. She was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm driving. She was like, but we're late. And I was like, well, I know that I'm going to speed limit, but we're late. <laughs> I was like, hold on a second. So you don't speed, but it's okay if I, if I do it as long as it, you know, gives you a higher probability of being on time. Um, <laughs> Uh, which would usually lead to me preaching some sermon in the car about Romans 13 and, and how absurd it was for Christians to follow all these, you know, kind of puritanical churchianity rules we had made up. But then speed, like it's not in Romans 13, you know, I'd sit there and preach this whole, whole sermon at her. And even though my stint as a legalist was relatively short-lived, um, the tension of that debate has stayed with me. Um, I grew up a Catholic in a house where my parents weren't really casual drinkers. So um, the only time I saw alcohol was weddings and funerals, where a bunch of people would get together, go to church, and then get together like good Catholics and drink afterwards. And so church and alcohol just kind of went together in my world, because I never really saw my parents drink unless we had just been to church. And so like, that's just kind of how it worked in, in my life. And then when I became a Protestant in a, in a particular branch that, where no one drank, and instantly nobody could really give me a good reason why they didn't, they just didn't, uh, I was confused because almost everybody had a lead foot. And I was like, hold on a second. How does this go together? So I, I, uh, I got pretty comfortable with the tension that, that some of this um, brought up. And I'm, I'm, I'm still sold that tension is, a, is where we're supposed to live, not, not necessarily in the easy answers and the, and the quick you know, uh, certainty that we seem to cling to. Um, and I have one story because today's passage is absolutely rife with that kind of tension. Um, and I can almost promise you um, I'm going to make most of you very uncomfortable today. So, like, buckle in, you know, or play Candy Crush or something. Um, whatever you got to do to make it through today. Um, now, let me start with the announcement. It's completely okay for you to disagree with me. Like, that's... Uh, and church unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean we all believe the same thing and we all, you know, fall in line. It, it means that we love each other even when we disagree. So um, you are completely allowed to go, dude, you, you are utterly missing the mark on this one. Um, and, and that's okay. Amen? Amen. Okay. So um, we've been working through the Book of Acts this summer, uh, and this study is um, unfortunately coming to an end soon. I've been really enjoying it, but we're, um, we're coming toward the end of it next week. Um, I'm going to be gone. Uh, Brent, Brett, yeah, is going to be uh, bringing us the message, um, which I'm really excited to catch online. I'll be part of the OFAM next week, um, so I'm excited about that, uh, to, to, to catch online and, and join the OFAM. And then the, the week after, um, I'll have one more sermon, and then we're into our fifth Sunday family service for the end of, the, for the end of this uh, kind of summer series. And so uh, we're wrapping up this study of this uh, amazing book chronicling the earliest version of us and how they uh, kind of stumbled and fumbled and bumbled their way through this process of following God and what that might look like. What it might look like to obey the Holy Spirit um, uh, in, our, in the real world. So uh, here we are in 2021 doing the same thing um, with the benefit of being able to look back and read what they did and see how we can kind of draw from that uh, guidance and hope. Um, and we've now watched the early church move from this kind of temple-focused Jewish sect 
into this mobile temple that took the presence of God wherever it went, um, which had actually been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years, but it took the church a minute to kind of catch up to that. Um, it spread to all the villages surrounding Jerusalem, and then because of persecution, they went north into Samaria, which nobody was really expecting. This is the land of kind of the racial enemies of the Jews, um, where they found people who were ready and willing to join the cause of loving Christ and advancing his kingdom. Um, and then last week we watched this kind of scattered and threatened and vulnerable church uh, not only embrace the Samaritans, which they really never planned to do, um, with their generations of hatred and bitterness, but now they've actually opened their hearts to um, a much fresher and more poignant pain um, as they welcome Paul uh, into the church, who was only in this city to arrest these Christians, and these Christians take him in once he gets saved and, and protect him um, from harm. Uh, and so they're, they're, uh, this early church has chosen to love them, those who they don't like but don't really have any reason not to like. They've just been taught not to like them. Um, and also those who they have every reason not to like uh, and, uh, and love them as well. Um, and even in this, this culture of love that they've created, uh, that seems to be kicking doors open all over the place, in today's passage, the Holy Spirit drags the church into yet another arena that it wasn't ready for, um, that, that caught everybody off guard. We read chapter 9 last week, um, so we'll be picking up in chapter 10 this week if you want to follow along in your own Bible or app. If not, the words will be on the screen or, or if you're online, right in front of you. Um, in Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of an Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as uh, was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor, prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying with Simon a tanner who lives by the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a, uh, and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on a flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw uh, the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by the four corners. And in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared. I've never eaten anything that our Jewish law has declared impure or unclean. But the voice spoke again, Do not call unclean something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. <clears throat> what could the vision mean? <clears throat> then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling out the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, There are men who have come to looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you were looking for. Why have you come? Uh, they said, 
We were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He's a devout, God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up saying, Stand up. I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside and many others, where many others were assembled. Peter told them, You know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me, why have you sent for me? Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in my house. And at the same time, three o'clock in the afternoon, suddenly a man with dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send for a messenger, send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying at a house of Simon the Tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once, and it was good that you came. Now, we are all here waiting before God to hear your message the Lord has given you. Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after John was preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit with power. And Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses to all he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance for his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven by his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out to the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders to them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterwards, Cornelius asked them to stay with him for several days. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I know it's a little long, but let me start by saying this is this passage of Scripture is... Amazing on the surface, but gets um, really uncomfortable the closer you look at it. Uh, anybody ever seen the movie Usual Suspects? Anyone? If not, maybe put your hands over your ears because I'm about to spoil the ending, which is which is is huge. When you first see that movie, it's amazing. Like the ending, like is mind-boggling. The moment Verbal's leg straightens out and he's like, they got that voiceover, and he's like, like, and you're like, oh, like. Mind-blowing, until you think about it for a few minutes. And then you realize this entire movie you just watched, this whole narrative that just happened, he made up with names on the board, which means nothing you just saw actually happened, which means him, this big reveal at the end, means very little since it's not really the story of what truly happened. So you sit there and you're thinking, so that's not really that cool because nothing that he just said... Am I the only one that overthinks things? Is that... A, okay. Everyone else is like, no, it's still an awesome movie. Yeah. 
No, this, that's one of those movies to me that I loved it the first time I saw it. And then as I laid in bed thinking about it, I was like, so none of that was real. Because it was all on this bulletin board behind the car. Oh, man, that's a gift. So I don't even know who this guy is. I don't even know if kinds of those days are a real thing. Right? Anyway, so, um, yeah, far less, far less cool. Yes, I'm definitely overthinking. Um, well, this morning is kind of like that. It's one of those things that at first, at first glance, this is an amazing story. Peter has this amazing vision that changes things. He goes, and the very first Gentiles get saved, and that's, that's very, very cool. But it brings up some very uncomfortable questions. Um, and and let's, let's look at it. Peter comes home for lunch and decides um, to go on the roof to pray uh, until it's time to eat. <clears throat> and Luke tells us that while praying, he falls into a trance, which I absolutely love um, because it takes away a lot of that guilt of the times when I'm praying and fall asleep because I now call it falling into a trance. It's a whole different, it's a whole different thing now, and it's absolutely biblical for that to happen. Um, way better, way better way of telling the story. Um, but while Peter's in his trance, he has this, this like vision. He saw the sky opening. Something like a large sheet was let down by the four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, birds. And then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declares, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice said, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The more I read about Peter, the more I feel like he and I would have been buddies. Like, because if I had a dollar for every time I had a food dream, like that would, I get it. I get this. Um, uh, and we love this, this, this passage because most of us don't eat kosher. And so, for the most part, we don't even really understand um, why all those rules were there, were there anyway. Like, no bacon, no lobster, nothing cooked medium rare. Like, that is hell. That is my hell. Um, and so, for the most part, we can't figure out why Peter was even continuing to eat kosher after Jesus anyway. Like, it doesn't really um, make sense to us. Um, we understand the big ones that make sense in society, like don't kill, don't commit adultery, uh, like those. But, but the dietary laws don't make much sense to us, so we have no trouble just kind of leaving them behind. And we get kind of excited about this passage because we're like, yeah, finally, let's get rid of those things because they don't make any sense anyway. So, on the surface... Um, we not only like this passage, but um, we don't know um, what was taking the apostles so long to come to this conclusion to begin with. Um, but there is something really troublesome here about this passage, and it starts in Leviticus. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Of all the land animals, these are the ones you... Uh, uh, these are the ones you may use for food. And he goes on to tell what they're allowed to eat and what they're not allowed to eat. And there's even a section when he tells them what they're not allowed to eat um, about what you do if a utensil even touches one of those animals. Like, they're so unclean. If it touches a certain pot, you've got to break the pot. Like, you can't have that pot anymore. It touched an unclean animal. He goes on to tell them what kind of fish and birds and even what kind of bugs are okay to eat, which is totally weird. Can't have lobster, but grasshopper, totally fine. I guess totally okay. Um... Then he even explains what, you know, what to do um, uh, if one of those animals dies and you just have to, like, if you have to get rid of the carcass, you have to go outside the camp for the rest of the day because you're unclean. Um, and here's where things start to get uncomfortable because Leviticus 11 tells us that Peter could have quoted chapter and verse why he was not allowed to eat the animals on the dream sheet. Like, he's not allowed to, and he can quote it. He can 
pull it up in his Bible and point to it. Um, so here's the scary question. What do you do when the voice of God tells you to do something that the Word of God tells you not to do? And, and before you tell me that that can't happen, please look at Leviticus 11 and Acts 13. What do you do when God comes to you and tells you to do something that's forbidden in Scripture? I'm tempted to just sit in this discomfort for the rest of the service. Except, you know, I never could because silence makes me, like, itchy um, and uncomfortable. So I do intend to wrestle um, with this discomfort uh, in today's story, but Peter didn't get out of it immediately. So we're not going to either. We're going to sit there for a second. We're just going to let that question marinate as we, uh, as we go. Um, he woke up and didn't know what the dream meant. He woke up and went, how, how can I eat those animals? I'm, I'm not allowed to eat those animals. He had to sit there in that freaky tension for a minute. Uh, and so we're, so we're going to do the same. So Peter wakes up from his trance or whatever it was, um, and Cornelius' men were basically at the door asking for Peter. So the very next day, Peter goes with them and finds himself where um, he never in a million years thought he would be. He's, he's at a Gentile's home um, talking about Jesus. Uh, and, and, uh, and to get that, we have to set the stage on just how bizarre the situation is. First, we're told that Cornelius was devout. Um, he's a God-fearing man who generously prayed and gave to the poor. And, uh, and this description might lead us to believe that, that Cornelius is, in essence, like a believer, like, a, uh, like what we would think of as a believer, except this happens. They arrive in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius fell at his feet and started worshiping him. Now, some of us have weird worship practices, but none of us you know, bow down as, as hard as I try to get my kids to do that. They won't even do that. Like, none of us, like, worship people. Like, it, so to walk into someone's house and the dude drops on his knees and starts salaming in front of you and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You got the whole game way off. Like, so Peter's a Jew. Jews aren't even allowed in the home of a Gentile. And so Peter's already uncomfortable. He's already completely out of his, you know, comfort zone already, and the very first thing that happens the guy starts, like, idol-worshipping him. You know, and and so, there's no way Peter thinks this guy is like, is a God follower. Like, he's, he's got his worship so far off that it's that it's terrifying. So Peter's totally in uncharted territory. Um, the man of the house is breaking probably the biggest rule in the Jewish scripture, have no God before me, and he's, like, worshipping Peter. So this is this is already off. Um, so can you imagine what Peter's feeling at this moment? Like, not only is he in a place he's never been, but now this guy's breaking the number one Jewish commandment, you know, um, right in front of him. And uh, so there's this major element of, oh, God, what have I done myself into? Like, what am I even doing here? These people are crazy heathens, and I should have known better than to trust a hunger dream. Like, that's, that's like rule number one. Never, never trust something that comes to you when you're starving, you know. Like when you don't grocery shop when you're hungry, you know, because you don't need the things you think you need. Like it's the same deal. And of course, Peter stands up, uh, stands Cornelius up to basically keep himself from being worshipped and explain that he's just a person, you know. And uh, uh, but what we'll talk here, Peter easily could have seen this Gentile um, worshiping a human being 
and, and turned and walked away and gone, this, this guy's so far from God. He's got his game so off that there's no reason for me to, he's, he's worshiping people. Like, I, this is not worth my time. I'm, I'm going home. Um, but what I love about Peter, uh, for the, for the sake of, of his own heart, you know, doesn't want to be worshipped, he, he stops Cornelius. But other than that, he doesn't get caught up in the wrongness of Cornelius's experience. He doesn't, like, immediately go to the things that are off. He chooses instead to focus on what is right. And, uh, and I think sometimes we have this tendency to, to meet people where 90% of their worship and relationship with God is wrong. And, and, you know, and that 90% drives us so crazy that we spend our time attacking that 90% rather than drawing to that 10% and going, how do, we, how do we get this to grow and flourish this? Let's engage in a relationship based on what you have right. Even though clearly you have some stuff wrong. Clearly Cornelius had some stuff wrong, but Peter doesn't choose to make that what he focuses on. Rather than trying to find some... Uh, you know, the things that Cornelius is, is, is truly sinning in, he chooses to, find, chooses to find common ground and build a potential life-giving relationship out of what is right in the situation. It's like he actually goes hunting for something uh, that is right. We tend to go hunting for what's wrong. You know, oh, you're one of those people. You know, and, and so we immediately ostracize them based on this one thing that, that they have wrong, ignoring everything they may have rights. Like we go hunting for the debate, for the argument. That's what we really want. I love that Peter doesn't bail on this conversation just because Cornelius is clumsy and maybe even blasphemous in his worship. But once Peter um, keeps himself from being worshipped, he finds out that Cornelius had uh, received this, this visit from an angel who, who sent Cornelius to, to call for Peter. And by this point, Peter's starting to put the whole thing together. You know, he kind of has, and he starts to get that kind of understanding grin, like, oh, I see what God is doing here, the, the dream thing. and the, He's starting to put it together, that the gospel is for everyone, and that's a brand new idea. Uh, and, it, and if you've been following this series, you know that the church started out, you know, a Jewish group that, that was caring for widows and orphans. That was fairly unique, and they, that they were branching into this territory, not just caring for them, but but protecting the ones that might be ostracized. And so they were, they were kind of going into this brand new territory of caring for the poor. And then uh, the church ran into persecution. The gospel goes north of Samaria, and they're open to, to reaching this new group of people that they didn't think they would reach. And then we talked about how they welcomed Paul in, who had been trying to kill him like two days ago. Uh, so not only the kind of stale racial bitterness, but the... the the recent loss and pain that Paul had caused. They forgot that as well. But here's the deal. Samaritans getting saved was complicated. Paul getting saved was confusing, maybe frustrating. But the idea of a Gentile getting saved would have been very similar to you going and sharing the gospel with your pet dog. Like, to them. And in fact, dog was the, was the word that Jews used to talk about Gentiles. It was the slang word. Gentile dogs is what they called them. Because they did not see them as even the same species. Like Gentiles were not really the same people. So for Peter to realize that these Gentiles were not only allowed to hear the gospel, but that they actually needed to hear it, was an incredible leap of faith on his part. 
Now, I love that Peter's faith was rewarded. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles too. Amazed. I love that. Like they, No way were they expecting this. Now, imagine um, what it would be like if, if one of Peter's kind of disciples, one of the people in his entourage with them, as, as hard as it would have been for Peter to walk into a Gentile's home, um, he at least woke up with this disturbing dream and the Holy Spirit going, go, don't ask any questions, just go. That's unique to Peter. Imagine the people following Peter who didn't have the dream and the Holy Spirit telling them to go. They're just watching Peter lose his mind. They're like, what are you doing, dude? Like, these are Gentiles. These aren't even people. And, and then the Holy Spirit falls, falls, and I love that Luke uses that word. They were amazed, like blown away, minds blown here. Um, so when he uses this, you know, this word amazement, it's a big word in the Greek, but we don't have time for it, um, that, that the Holy Spirit was sent to these dogs um, this, uh, with the exact same confirmation that the Jews got, the Samaritans got. If you remember, we, we talked about that, um, about how the, the, um, every time the gospel breaks out into a new people group, God seems to send this same kind of confirmation to show that, that he really is. But, um, but the amazement kind of reveals their theology, that, that they were not ready for this moment. They did not see this moment as even possible. Uh, my 30th high school graduation reunion is this year. I haven't really been to one since my 10th. Um, but when I went to my 10th, I was voted most changed um, because no one, that was before social media like allowed us to know what was going on in everybody's world. And so the number one topic of the evening was the fact that Chris Science would have become a pastor. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that. Or that he was married to a smoking hot wife and had like a million kids. Nobody saw any of that coming. Um, and of course, everybody was, you know, talking about it and, and blown away. But, uh, but that's like a fraction of what it would have been like. For the, like, if you picked the person in your past and you're like, yeah, that person would never, ever become, you know, be in the ministry. And then you find out they are. And you're like, whoa. You know, that, that doesn't even touch what's going on here today. That, that actual Gentiles are getting, getting saved. And this reveals a, a dangerous reality in Christianity that I think we have to combat. And we're going to unpack this just a little bit. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about when the gospel first broke into Samaria. Peter and John had to kind of go up and confirm it. You know, they, they weren't 100% sure. You know, because they've been taught that these not to like these people. And so they go up and they to see if these people really had received Jesus. And the Holy Spirit falls and confirms that they had. And, and uh, and Peter and John are not at all confrontational about it. They just want confirmation. They just want to validate it. Um, and so once they found out it was true, they they stop in every Samaritan village along the way home to preach Jesus, which is awesome. Well, in today's story, another new people group is introduced to the gospel. Only this time when Peter uh, tells about Jesus, then he goes back home to his home church in Jerusalem. This is his homecoming. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. We would celebrate that. Yay! But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of a Gentile and ate with him? So these Jews, all of whom were raised their entire life with this core belief 
that they were God's chosen people who are a light on a hill and a beacon to the nations and a royal priesthood. And then beyond that, out of that special group of people, this even smaller group represents those whom God has chosen to believe in Jesus. Like those who Jesus... So they're like an elite group within an elite group, right? Because they've been chosen to kind of herald this message of Jesus. So what's happening here in this book of Acts is something that I fear plagues the church far too often. This group of people who followed Jesus, and honestly, while they were following Jesus, screwed up way more than they got it right. Like, the number of times Jesus is like, holy smokes, where is your faith? Like, can you do anything right? Like, I can hear my dad in Jesus' voice, right? You know, um, and, and, uh, and, and, and then the second Jesus gets arrested, they scatter like quail. They're gone. They go back to their jobs. Like, and then they got to experience the absolutely amazing grace and love of Jesus as he, as he not only forgave but accepted them back in um, despite their unbelievable unworthiness. In other words, the people who are uniquely qualified to understand just how welcomely, welcome and outrageously loving Jesus is, the people who should know that best are acting like bouncers outside a high-end club, deciding who gets in and who gets out. Something has happened where they're the ones who should be like understanding that God accepts He accepted me. My goodness, He accepts everybody. And now something shifted where they're like, hold on a second, are you allowed in? Something's changed. And I'm afraid this sounds un- uncomfortably familiar to me. Why do we do this? Because we do this, don't we? All of us know that we're only here because of grace. You know, somebody walks in with some you know, hits in their lifestyle, we're like, hold on a second, are you allowed here? Like, I don't think, I don't think you're supposed to do that. Like, suddenly we become the police. In America, do you know who historically fights against immigration? Every time, like going all the way back to the beginning, the group that most resists new immigration is the last group to immigrate. Every single time. You know, when we had the big Irish immigration with the Irish potato famine, the very next immigration, the Irish are the ones going, keep them out, keep them out. Like, it's, it's always the people, I don't know why humanity does that, but I feel like it happens in the church too. We love the grace of God. We're so grateful that he loves sinners like me, that he, that he allowed me in when their lives are a mess. We were the immigrant needing safe harbor, and God opened up to us to let him in. We start to immediately after that identify those that have something off. Yeah, but they're they do this. Or did you did you hear how they vote? Did you hear either you know? Did you see the sign in their yard? Like we immediately start to identify the things that are off, and we're like, no, not them though. Like I'm thrilled God let me in, but not them. One of the reasons we pray to prayer. I forgot to print the liturgy for Reg, so he did awesome having nothing to go off of, but and it's ironic that I brought this up, the one week we don't pray the prayer of contrition. But the reason we pray the prayer of contrition every single week is I hate the tendency of, of how quickly we begin to feel like we deserve to be here. That, that, that bugs me. So every, every single week I love to start by saying, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I blew it this week. I did not love you with my whole heart. I did not love my neighbor as myself. I messed up. I'm so glad you love me and accept me anyway. But in this morning's story, the Jerusalem church struggles with that same thing. 
they actually attack Peter for sharing the gospel with those people. And Peter falls back on, on Pentecost and his trip with John to Samaria. He says, look, the Holy Spirit made absolutely no distinction between them and us. So if you have a problem, take it up with him. Basically what, what Peter says. And to the early church's credit, once Peter, they heard Peter's story, they responded like this. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. So all's well that ends well, right? Like, it, it's good. The Gentiles receive the gospel. The church accepts them. A whole new chapter of grace and salvation is opened up in the church, which is about to explode into the Gentile world and literally go into Europe and change history and create Western culture as we know it. So this is a, a huge moment. Except, we still have to wrestle with that question about how on earth Peter is supposed to handle hearing the voice of God tell him to do something the Word of God forbids. Because no matter what happens with Cornelius and his family, and Peter and his entourage, and the Jerusalem church and all their confrontations, there was a moment in this story where Peter was faced with the voice from heaven telling him to rise, kill, and eat, but black words on a white page saying, no, don't eat. And he has to figure out what to do with that moment. And if that doesn't terrify you, it should. Because the idea of people running around doing whatever they want, going, oh, no, God told me it's okay, is spooky. None of us want that. And though I don't know exactly what to do with this uncomfortable tension in this passage, I do want to at least highlight some of the realities that lead to this discomfort. First and foremost, remaining teachable is hard. Remaining teachable is very hard. Everything in our makeup pushes us towards certainty. Everything pushes us toward truth, right? And the feeling of certainty closes us off from new information and further teaching. The second we believe what we have is the 100% truth, it's really, really hard to be open and teachable. Dale came back from a, from a trip to Branson this year and told me about going to the Sight and Sound Theater for a passion play. And for the first time ever realizing that there's a really, really good chance he would have been on the wrong side of the triumphal entry. He was like, for the first time in my life, I see how easy it would have been to dismiss Jesus if you were a Pharisee. And he was like, I've never thought of that before. I've always assumed I would have been on the right side. I would, for me, it was a Ted Decker book. I was reading this Ted Decker book that had this allegorical Jesus character. And I was so caught up in the, uh, the, the plight of the protagonist, because Jesus, Jesus character kind of, he's not named Jesus. I would have caught that. Um, he... Um, <laughs> He just kind of comes in out of nowhere, and he's this utterly frustrating character who's screwing with the narrative arc. Like, he's messing with the protagonist's goals. And, and I'm, there's, I, I honestly, at one point, was like, somebody is going to have to deal with this guy because he's screwing things up here. And then when the allegory drops and you realize who he is, I just, I shut the book, and I was like, holy cow. I would have been one of the people going crucify him. He's screwing up the narrative. Like, and it was like a big moment for me. I was like, because I... We all put ourselves at just assuming we'd be one of the good guys. Every single one of us assumed we would have been one of the disciples. Man, if I could have followed Jesus. No, I probably would have been going, who is this loudmouth that's messing up the story? Let's crucify him. 
I think there's a good chance that would have been me. And the bad thing is, neither Dale nor I are trying to be resistant at all. We were just uncomfortable, or we were just really comfortable with what we believed, and believed it was the right thing, and so we closed ourselves off to anything, anything, any other understanding. So every time we read the Bible like this, like, how did those idiots miss Jesus? He was feeding thousands and healing people and casting out demons. I mean, it was so obvious. And it took a, a, a revelation sneaking up on us to catch that that we might have we might we might have missed it. For Peter, it was a sheet full of potential food to get him to realize that that the story might be playing out differently than he thought. If this morning's passage tells us anything, it tells us that we can be a hundred percent positive we're right and be wrong. And that's a spooky reality. See, Peter didn't actually have the, the Word of God saying one thing and the voice of God saying another. What he had was his understanding of the Word of God saying one thing and the voice of God saying another. And the only way to rectify that was to stay teachable. Was to go, okay, I clearly have something wrong because God would not contradict himself. So I have to rethink. I have to look again. What did I get wrong? I have to stay teachable. I have to stay flexible because clearly there's something off. I need to go back. And Peter did what we all do. He argued with God. <laughs> no, 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 God. You have this wrong. I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws declare common or unclean. Can you imagine arguing with God about what his word says? I hope you say yes because we all do it. We all do it. Don't, don't, be, don't do that. No, I've never no, we all do that. And this is how learning happens. We take what we believe to be true and we bump it against the real truth until it breaks. We resist the urge to assume that we already know everything there is to know. See, in Peter's situation, he had been taught not to eat certain foods. Period. Easy peasy. How could you mess that up? Here's a list. Don't eat this stuff. Except what the truth actually says is all these small animals are unclean for you. If any of you even touch the dead body of such an animal, you will be unclean until evening. So what the scripture actually says is that if you eat or butcher one of these animals, you'll be unclean. It actually goes on to say that anything that comes in contact with such an animal is unclean. And this is where things get tricky because tricky, in the Torah, the, the flow of cleanliness or cleanness, whatever you want to call it, moves in one direction. When a clean object comes in contact with an unclean object, the unclean object makes the clean object unclean. Did I get that right? <laughs> the unclean object makes the clean object unclean. We all live in a pandemic. We understand how germs work. Right? It's pretty easy. But as Jesus walked the earth, he had this habit of touching things he wasn't supposed to touch. He touched lepers who were the definition of unclean. According to Torah, that meant that, that the uncleanness of leprosy was supposed to make Jesus unclean. Except something weird always happened. The clean thing suddenly made the unclean thing clean. Jesus somehow reversed the flow of, of the, the Torah understanding of cleanness. 
Now, when an unclean thing was touching a clean thing, the clean thing made the unclean thing clean. Did I get that right? Earlier, when they were talking about Peter being by the seashore, I almost did a Sally Sells seashell thing, but I didn't realize it was coming anyway. Jesus said the same thing to a woman who had been, who had been uh, bleeding for 12 years. According to Torah, anyone who came in contact with a woman who was bleeding was unclean. She, she had to be isolated for a week a month. But some people, you know, were like, man, that was terrible. You just, but it's a vacation. One, one week a month, that's pretty awesome. Like, how many of you moms wouldn't take a week a month to just sit alone and go, sorry, on my cycle, going to read a magazine. It's not a bad gig. But this woman who's so this woman who's not only suffering from what was probably some form of uterine cancer was also socially ostracized. She's not allowed to get close to anybody. She has to live outside of her society because because of this problem. And she sneaks in and touches Jesus, which is not only incredibly rude in that culture, but it's punishable. She can get in huge trouble for that. Except again, the clean thing made the unclean thing clean. The woman who was healed and, and subsequently ritually clean again. So as we look back at Peter's fast food vision, we need to ask what Peter might have been missing. And the obvious answer seems to be that the flow of cleanliness had been reversed in Jesus. Or maybe a better way of saying it is that now that Peter was made clean by faith in Jesus and had the Holy Spirit in him, he was clean, period. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the difference between living a life pleasing to God versus living a life trusting God. And it sounds like a ridiculous dichotomy since they both seem so essential to please God and to trust God until you come to the realization that a life of trusting God pleases God. So you can work really hard all your life to please God, or you can and never really trust Him, or you can trust that you please Him without the work. Two very different worlds. So Peter seems to be realizing that he doesn't have to work to get clean because he is clean. Even more, he has the power to make clean. Which might seem weird when we're thinking about kosher foods. And Peter wakes up not understanding it until he shows up at Cornelius' house. This is where Peter gets that grin of understanding. This is the moment that Peter realizes how hard it, it is to stay teachable. This is the moment that allegory drops and he realizes he's standing on the wrong side of the line. This is the obvious point of the whole thing. What I think Peter is realizing here is that the gospel's ability to cleanse went, was far greater than he ever realized. Peter was still functioning in this clean and unclean paradigm. I can't go to those people's houses. They're unclean. What if I became unclean? What if they made me unclean? He was still thinking in terms of avoiding the unclean things and allowing the clean things. And, and this event with these Gentiles made him realize that that there was a difference between that life and a life where he knew he was clean and had the ability to make other things clean. 
you have the power to take this cleansing power of the gospel with him. So how do we respond to this? We've been using this uh, book to look at what the early church might have to say about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the real world. And with today's story, is that I, um, I want to leave with a couple questions to maybe challenge us with. I said a few minutes ago that I'd throw out some of the realities that come to bear on the tensions in this passage. The first was that it's hard to stay teachable. It's really hard. Um, but the questions I'd love to leave us with um, are how I'd like to maybe draw out the other realities. Because I think this passage plays out every day in 2021. Whether it's your friends or your family or your coworkers or your social media contacts, we are all surrounded by Corneliuses. We all know people who we have vilified and treated like a different species purely because they bear a different tag than us. They have a different a different title. They whether it's political or theological or racial or gender related or whether or not you get a vaccine or the thousand other things that polarize us, we have a tendency to focus on the things that are off rather than the things that are right, the things that are on. Peter could have gotten hung up that Cornelius was the kind of guy who idolizes and worships people and said, by those standards, this dude is hopeless. I'm a Christ follower. You're a, you're a polytheistic paganist. We could never get along. We could never be friends. Instead, he embraces Peter, enters Cornelius' house, which to a first century Jew was to engage in relationship. That was to say, that was how you made friends. With Cornelius' clumsy spiritual disciplines and all, Peter engaged. So with that in mind, here are my questions. Do you spend more time worrying about getting unclean than you do thinking about ways that you can bring the cleansing power of Jesus to the world? Are you more nervous that something out there might make you unclean than you are realizing you have the power to go out and take the power of the gospel with you to make a difference in the world. And yeah, you might have to go into unclean places to do it. Which do you spend more time on? The, the idea that it's my job to stay clean and, and to worry about getting unclean or that God has made me clean and I have the power to take that out with me. I mean, in your mind, finish, finish this sentence. Don't do it out loud. That would get weird. I could never hang out with him. He's a blank. I could never be friends with her because she blanks. Whatever you use to finish that, it's probably not falls down at the feet of humans and worships them. <laughs> probably not that weird. And I'm not saying there are not limits to what you should embrace in a friendship. But, but what if you are the light that God plans to use to change those things? What if you're the light God plans to send to Cornelius? 
What if your friendship, love, acceptance is the clean thing that is supposed to make the unclean thing clean? So that's my first question. Do you spend more time and energy trying to stay clean to the point that you fail to make unclean things clean? My second question is much simpler. Do you trust the Holy Spirit? Do you trust that the Spirit of God has the power and the ability to convict someone of error and also empower them to correct it? Or do you feel like that's your job? I had lunch a few years ago with a grown man with a nice beard, wearing a dress and makeup. He had called and asked if I'd meet with him, and I, I didn't know he was going to show up like that. <laughs> He was lonely and lost and hurting. And, and so as we talked and I heard his story, I invited him to church to meet people and draw closer to God and, and chase after Jesus. He was raised in church, loved Jesus, had issues with organized religion, as you can imagine. At some point in the conversation, he said to me, I, I really like who I am. It's taken me a while to get comfortable with who I am. And I'm afraid if I go to church, get connected with people and all that stuff, God will ask me to change I don't want to change. And my answer was quick and immediate and simple. I said, I can absolutely guarantee you that God will ask you to change. There's no doubt about that. that is a, that's actually exactly what the Holy Spirit does. That's his job. I said, you can count on it. But I cannot begin to guess what those changes might be. I hope it would be that you'd be convicted to be more loving, less racist, more giving, more driven and full of purpose, more forgiving as a human. And maybe he'll choose to work on the other stuff, but I, that's the least of what I would be concerned about. I'd be concerned about, are you exemplifying Jesus? But yeah, absolutely the Holy Spirit's going to make you change. He makes all of us change. And yeah, ours may not be necessarily on the earth, but of course he comes in and challenges us every day. That's his job. I told him, how about you leave it up to the Holy Spirit? That way we just do that. I was like, because if, if he decides to ask you to change, it's going to be so, so subtle and so beautiful that you'll think it was you. You'll think you just wanted to change. He's going to just, he'll just empower you to want to want to be different. And hopefully it's in, it's in, not just in your attire, but hopefully it's in your, your whole life that he makes you just a better human. More like Jesus. Just a better way to, to, to love people and shine a light. I told ignore people who try to push you into a mold. That's fine. But follow Jesus. Chase after Jesus. I was like, come to church dressed like that if you want. And then after the meal, I was like, oh God, <laughs> you gotta, I'm trusting you to do this work. I'm not going to sit here and go, this is who you're supposed to be if you're a Jesus follower. That's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to say, come follow Jesus with me. And then trust that if he does, the Holy Spirit does the rest. So my question is, do you trust the Holy, that the Holy Spirit does that? That the Holy Spirit's powerful enough and big enough and, 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 and involved enough to do that? Because our job seems pretty simple. Love God, love people. That does not say, love God, get people to obey. That's not your job. 
mean, can you imagine the things that Peter had overlooked to love on Cornelius? He's a total stranger, so he's got no, like, emotional attachment to this guy. He just met him two seconds ago. He's a Gentile, which means there's basically 1,500 years of racism in the way. Cornelius is also a Roman centurion, which means this guy is kind of the muscle behind the organization that both lords over, brutally taxes, and occasionally demonstrates their power over your people, over Peter's people. This guy's an integral part of that political and military machine that the Jews hated so much. And not only that, the guy's a polytheist who worships people. And Peter looked past all of that and saw a human being made in the image of God who needed Jesus. And all the rest was up, was up to God. So the way I'd love for us to respond to this message is, is as we come to the table and as we sing this last song, is to wrestle with those, those two questions. Maybe just two on them. Am I more worried about getting unclean than I am about helping others get clean? And do I really believe that the Holy Spirit is able and willing to both convict and empower other people? Or do I feel like that's my job? Let's go to the table.